Welcome to the Stillwater's Revival Books reading of Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. This is the twelfth reading in this series. Stillwater's Revival Books makes thousands of classic Puritan and Reformed books and sermons available, free and at great discounts in print, audio, and video formats at puritandownloads.com. If you would like to join our email list to stay up to date about all the new, free, and discounted Puritan and Reformed resources we make available, please send an email to swrb at swrb.com with the word ADD in the subject line. For more information about the Puritan Publishing Ministry of SWRB, please email us at swrb at swrb.com. And now, to our reading of Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. Section 93 This, therefore, is not the place. This is not the time for adoring those Corician caverns, but for adoring the true majesty in its to-be-feared, wonderful, and incomprehensible judgments and saying, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 Whereas we are nowhere more irreverent and rash than in trespassing and arguing upon these very inscrutable mysteries and judgments, and while we are pretending to a great reverence in searching the Holy Scriptures, those which God has commanded to be searched, we search not. But those which he has forbidden us to search into, those we search into, and none other. And that with an unceasing temerity, not to say blasphemy. For is it not searching with temerity when we attempt to make the all-free prescience of God to harmonize with our freedom, prepared to derogate prescience from God, rather than lose our own liberty? Is it not temerity when he imposes necessity upon us to say with murmurings and blasphemies, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Romans 9.19 where is God by nature most merciful? Where is he who willeth not the death of a sinner? Has he then created us for this purpose only, that he might delight himself in the torments of men? And many things of the same kind, which will be howled forth by the damned in hell to all eternity. But, however... Natural reason herself is compelled to confess that the living and true God must be such an one as, by his own liberty, to impose necessity on us. For he must be a ridiculous God, or idol rather, who did not to a certainty foreknow the future, or was liable to be deceived in events when even the Gentiles ascribe to their gods fate inevitable. And he would be equally ridiculous if he could not do and did not all things, 
or if anything could be done without him. If then the prescience and omnipotence of God be granted, it naturally follows as an irrefragable consequence that we neither were made by ourselves nor lived by ourselves, nor do anything by ourselves, but by his omnipotence do we do. And since he at the first foreknew that which should be such, and since he has made us such, and moves and rules over as such, how, I ask, can it be pretended that there is any liberty in us to do in any respect otherwise than he at first foreknew and now proceeds in action? Wherefore, the prescience and omnipotence of God are diametrically opposite to our free will. And it must be that either God is deceived in his prescience and errs in his action, which is impossible, or we act and are acted upon according to his prescience and action. But by the omnipotence of God, I mean, not that power by which he does not many things that he could do, but that actual power by which he powerfully works all in all, in which sense the scripture calls him omnipotent. The omnipotence and prescience of God, I say, utterly abolishes the doctrine of free will. No pretext can here be framed about the obscurity of scripture or the difficulty of the subject point. The words are most clear and known to every schoolboy, and the point is plain and easy and stands proved by judgment of, of common sense, so that the series of ages, of times, or of persons, either writing or teaching to the contrary, be it as great as it may, amounts to nothing at all. Section 94 But it is this that seems to give the greatest offense to common sense or natural reason, that the God who is set forth as being so full of mercy and goodness should, of his mere will, leave men, harden them, and damn them, as though he delighted in the sins and in the great and eternal torments of the miserable. To think thus of God seems iniquitous, cruel, intolerable, and it is this that has given offense to so many and great men of so many ages. And who would not be offended? I myself have been offended more than once, even unto the deepest abyss of desperation, nay, so far as even to wish that I had never been born a man. That is, before I was brought to know how helpful that desperation was, and how near it was unto grace. Here it is, that there has been much toiling and laboring to excuse the goodness of God and to accuse the will of man. Here it is 
that distinctions have been invented between the ordinary will of God and the absolute will of God, between the necessity of the consequence and the necessity of the thing consequent, and many other inventions of the same kind, by which nothing has ever been effected but an imposition upon the unlearned by vanities of words and by oppositions of science, falsely so-called. For after all, a conscious, conscience or conscious conviction has been left deeply rooted in the heart both of the learned and the unlearned. If ever they have come to an experience of these things and a knowledge that our necessity is a consequence that must follow upon the belief of the prescience and omnipotence of God, and even natural reason herself, who is so offended at this necessity, and to invent so many contrivances to take it out of the way, is compelled to grant it upon her own conviction from her own judgment, even though there were no scripture at all. For all men find these sentiments written in their hearts, and they acknowledge and approve them, though against their will, whenever they hear them treated upon. First, that God is omnipotent, not only in power but in action, as I said before, and that, if it were not so, he would be a ridiculous God. And next, that he knows and foreknows all things, and neither can err nor be deceived. These minds of all, they are at once compelled for an inevitable consequence to admit that we are not made from our will, but from necessity, and, moreover, that we do not what we will according to the law of free will, but as God foreknew and proceeds in action according to his infallible and immutable counsel and power. Wherefore, it is found written alike in the hearts of all men that there is no such thing as free will, though that writing be obscured by so many contending disputations and by the great authority of so many men who have, through so many ages, taught otherwise. Even as every other law also, which according to the testimony of Paul, is written in our hearts, is then acknowledged when it is rightly set forth, and then obscured when it is confused by wicked teachers and drawn aside by other opinions. Section 95 I now return to Paul. If he does not, Romans 9, explain this point, nor clearly state our necessity from the prescience and will of God, what need was there for him to introduce the similitude of the potter, who, of the same lump of clay, makes one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor?
Romans 9:21. What need was there for him to observe that the thing formed does not say to him that it formed or that formed it why hast thou made me thus verse 20 he is there speaking of men and he compares them to clay and God to a potter this similitude therefore stands coldly useless nay is introduced ridiculously and in vain if it be not his sentiment that we have no liberty whatever nay the whole of the argument of Paul wherein he defends grace is in vain for the design of the whole epistle is to show that we can do nothing even when we seem to do well as he in the same epistle testifies where he says that Israel which followed after righteousness did not attain unto righteousness but that the Gentiles which followed not after it did attain it Romans 9 30 and 31 concerning which I shall speak more at large hereafter when I produce my forces the fact is the diatribe designedly keeps back the body of Paul's argument and its scope and comfortably satisfies itself with prating upon a few detached and corrupted terms nor does the exhortation which Paul afterwards gives Roman 9, Romans 9 at all help the diatribe where he saith quote thou standest by faith be not high minded unquote verse 20 and again quote and they also if they shall believe shall be grafted in for he says nothing there about the ability of man but brings forth imperative and conditional expressions and what effect they are intended to produce has been fully shown already moreover Paul there anticipating the boasters of free will does not say they can believe but he saith God is able to graft them in again verse 23 to be brief the diatribe moves along with so much hesitation and so lingeringly in handling these passages of Paul that its conscience seems to give the lie to all that it writes for just at the point where it ought to have gone on to the proof it for most part stops short with a but of this enough but I shall not now but I shall not now proceed with this but this is not my present purpose or but here they should have said so and so and many other evasions of the same kind and it leaves off the subject just in the middle so that you are left in uncertainty whether it wished to be understood as speaking on free will or whether 
it was only evading the sense of Paul by means of vanities of words. And all this is being just in its character as not having a serious thought upon the cause in which it is engaged. But as far for me, no, but as for me, I dare not be thus cold, thus always on the tiptoe of policy, or thus move to and fro, as a reed shaken by the wind, I must assert with certainty, with constancy, and with ardor, and prove what I assert solidly, appropriately, and fully. Section 96 And now excellently does the diatribe preserve liberty in harmony with necessity, where it says, quote, nor does all necessity exclude free will. For instance, God the Father begets a son of necessity, but yet he begets him willingly and freely, seeing that he is not forced. Am I here, I pray you, disputing about compulsion and force? Have I not said in all my books again and again that my dispute on this subject is about the necessity of immutability? I know that the Father begets willingly and that Judas willingly betrayed Jesus. But I say this willingly in the person of Judas was decreed to take place from immutability and certainty, if God foreknew it. Or, if men do not yet understand what I mean, I make two necessities. The one, a necessity of force, in reference to the act. The other, a necessity of immutability in reference to the time. Let him, therefore, who wishes to hear what I have to say, understand that I here speak of the latter, not the former. That is, I do not dispute whether Judas became a traitor willingly or unwillingly, but whether or not it was decreed to come to pass that Judas, that Judas should will to betray Christ at a certain time infallibly predetermined of God. But only listen to what the diatribe says upon this point. Quote, With reference to the immutable prescience of God, Judas was of necessity to become a traitor. Nevertheless, Judas had it in his power to change his own will. Dost thou understand, friend diatribe, what thou sayest? To say nothing of that which has been already proved, that the will cannot will anything but evil. How could Judas change his own will if the immutable prescience of God stand granted? Could he change the prescience of God and render it fallible? Here the diatribe gives it up, and 
leaving its standard and throwing down its arms, runs from its post and hands over the discussion to the subtleties of the schools concerning the necessity of the consequence and of the thing consequent, pretending, quote, that it does not wish to engage in the discussion of points so nice, unquote. A step of policy truly, friend diatribe, when you have brought the subject point into the midst of the field, and just when the champion disputant was required, then you show your back, and leave to others the business of answering and defining. But you should have taken this step at the first, and abstain from writing altogether. He who ne'er approved the training field of arms, let him ne'er in the battle's brunt appear. For it never was expected of Erasmus that he should remove that difficulty which lies in God's foreknowing all things, and our, nevertheless, doing all things by contingency. This difficulty existed in the world long before the diatribe saw the light, but yet it was expected that he should make some kind of answer and give some kind of definition, whereas he, by using a rhetorical transition, drags away us, knowing nothing of rhetoric, along with himself, as though we were here contending for a thing of naught, and were engaged in quibbling about insignificant niceties, and thus nobly betakes himself out of the midst of the field, bearing the crowns both of the scholar and the conqueror. Be not so, brother. There is no rhetoric or sufficient force to cheat an honest conscience. The voice of conscience is proof against all powers and figures of eloquence. I cannot here suffer a rhetorician to pass on under the cloak of dissimulation. This is not a time for such maneuvering. This is that part of the discussion where matters come to the turning point. Here is the hinge upon which the whole turns. Here, therefore, free will must completely be vanquished or completely triumphed. But here you, seeing your danger, nay, the certainty of victory over free will, pretend that you see nothing but argumentative niceties. Is this to act the part of a faithful theologian? Can you feel a serious interest in your cause? You thus leave your auditors in suspense and your arguments in a state that confuses and exasperates them while you nevertheless wish to appear to have given honest satisfaction and open explanation? This craft and cunning might perhaps be born within, with, may be born with in profane subjects, but in a theological subject, where simple and open truth is the object required for the salvation of souls, it is utterly hateful and intolerable.
Section 97 The sophists also felt the invincible and insupportable force of this argument, and therefore they invented the necessity of the consequence and of the thing consequent. But to what little purpose this figment is, I have shown already. For they do not all the while observe what they are saying, and what conclusions they are admitting against themselves. For if you grant the necessity of consequence, free will lies vanquished and prostrate, nor does either the necessity or the contingency of the thing consequent profit at anything. What is it to me if free will be not compelled, but do what it does willingly? It is enough for me that you grant that it is of necessity, that it does willingly what it does, and that it cannot do otherwise if God foreknew it would be so. If God foreknew either that Judas would be a traitor or that he would change his willing to be a traitor, whichsoever of the two God foreknew must of necessity take place or God will be deceived in his prescience and prediction which is impossible. This is the effect of the necessity of the consequence. That is, if God foreknows a thing, that thing must of necessity take place. That is, there is no such thing as free will. This necessity of the consequence, therefore, is not obscure or ambiguous, as the diatribe says, so that even if the doctors of all ages were blinded, yet they, they must admit, because it is so manifest and plain, as to be actually palpable. And as to the necessity of the thing consequent, with which they comfort themselves, that is a mere phantom, and is, and is in diametrical opposition to the necessity of the consequence. For example, the necessity of the consequence is, so to set it forth, God foreknows that Judas will be a traitor. Therefore, it will certainly and infallibly come to pass that Judas shall be a traitor. Against this necessity of the consequence, you comfort yourself thus. But since Judas can change his willing to betray, therefore, there is no necessity of the thing consequent. How, I ask you, will these two positions harmonize? Judas is able to will not will not to betray. And Judas must of necessity will to betray. Do not these two directly contradict and militate against each other? But he will not be compelled, you say, to betray against his will. What is that to the purpose? You were speaking of the necessity of the thing consequent and saying that that need not of necessity follow from the necessity of the consequence. 
you were not speaking of the compulsive necessity of the thing consequent. The question was concerning the necessity of the thing consequent, and you produce an example concerning the compulsive necessity of the thing consequent. I ask one thing, and you answer another. But this arises from that yawning sleepiness under which you do not observe what nothingness that figment amounts to concerning the necessity of the thing consequent. Suffice it to have been spoken thus to the former part of the second part, which has been concerning the hardening of Pharaoh, and which involves indeed all the scriptures and all our forces and those invincible. Now, let us proceed to the remaining part concerning Jacob and Esau, who are spoken of as being not yet born. Romans 9.11 Section 98 This place the diatribe evades by saying that it does not properly pertain to the salvation of man. For God, it says, may will that a man shall be a servant or a poor man, and yet not reject him from the eternal salvation. Only observe, I pray you, how many evasions and ways of escape a slippery mind will invent which would flee from the truth and yet cannot get away from it after all. Be it so that this passage does not pertain to the salvation of man, to which point I shall speak hereafter, are we to suppose, then, that Paul, who adduces it, does so for no purpose whatever? Shall we make Paul to be ridiculous or a vain trifler in a discussion so serious? But all this breathes nothing but Jerome, who dares to say, in more places than one, with a supercilious brow and a sacrilegious mouth, that those things are made to be a force in Paul, which, in their own places, are of no force. This is no less than saying that Paul, where he lays the foundation of the Christian doctrine, does nothing but corrupt the Holy Scriptures and delude believing souls with sentiments hatched out of his own brain and violently thrust into the scriptures. Is this honoring the Holy Spirit in Paul that sanctified an elect instrument of God? Thus, when Jerome ought to be read with judgment, and this saying of his to be numbered among those many things which that man impiously wrote, such was his yawning inconsiderateness and his stupidity in understanding the scriptures. The diatribe drags him in without any judgment and not thinking it right, that his authority should be lessened by any mitigating gloss whatever, takes him as a most certain oracle, whereby to judge of and a temper 
the scriptures. And thus it is. We take the impious sayings of men as rules and guides in the Holy Scripture and then wonder that it should become obscure and ambiguous and that so many fathers should be blind in it whereas the whole proceeds from this impious and sacrilegious reason. Section 99 Let him then be anathema who shall say that those things which are of no force in their own places are made to be of force in Paul. This, however, is only said, it is not proved, and it is said by those who understand neither Paul nor the passages adduced by him, but are deceived by terms, that is, by their own impious interpretations of them. And if it be allowed that this passage, Genesis 25, 21 through 23, is to be understood in a temporal sense, which is not the true sense, yet it is rightly and effectually adduced by Paul when he proves from it that it was not of the merits of Jacob and Esau, but of him that calleth that it was said unto Rebekah, quote, The elder shall serve the younger, unquote. Romans 9:11-16. Paul is argumentatively considering whether or not they attained unto that which was said of them by the power of merits or free will. And he proves that they did not but that Jacob attained unto that unto which Esau attained not solely by the grace of him that calleth. And he proves that by the incontrovertible words of scripture. That is, that they were, quote, not born yet, unquote. And also that they had, quote, done neither good nor evil, unquote. This proof contains the weighty sum of his whole subject point and by the same proof our subject point is settled also the diatribe however having disassemblingly passed over all these particulars with an excellent rhetorical fetch does not here argue at all upon merit which nevertheless it undertook to do and which this subject point of Paul requires but caviles about temporal bondage as though that were at all to the purpose but it is merely that it might not seem to be overthrown by the all forcible words of Paul for what had it which it could not could yelp against Paul in support of free will. What did free will do for Jacob? Or what did it do against Esau? When it was already determined by the prescience and predestination of God before either of them was born, what should be the portion of each? That is, that the one should serve and the other rule. Thus, 
The rewards were decreed before the workmen wrought or were born. It is to this that the diatribe ought to have answered. Paul contends for this, that neither had done either good or evil, and yet that by the divine sentence the one was decreed to be a servant and the other the other Lord. The question here is not whether the servitude pertain unto salvation, but from what merit it was imposed on him who had not deserved it. But it is wearisome to contend with these depraved attempts to pervert and evade scripture. Section 100 But, however, that Moses does not intend their servitude only, and that Paul is perfectly right in understanding understanding it concerning eternal salvation is manifest from the text itself. And although this is somewhat wide of our present purpose, yet I will not suffer Paul to be contaminated with the calumnies of the sacrilegious. The oracle in Moses is thus, Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Genesis 25-23 Here, manifestly, are two people distinctly mentioned. The one, though the younger, is received into the grace of God to the intent that he might overcome the other, not by his own strength indeed, but by a favoring God. For how could the younger overcome the elder unless God were with him? Since, therefore, the younger was to be the people of God, it is not only the external rule or servitude which is there spoken of, but all that pertains to the Spirit of God. That is, the blessing, the word, the spirit, the promise of, promise of Christ and the everlasting kingdom. And this, the scripture, more fully confirms afterwards where it describes Jacob as being blessed and receiving the promises and the kingdom. All this Paul briefly intimates where he saith, The elder shall serve the younger, and he sends us to Moses who treats upon the particulars more fully. So that you may say, in reply to the sacrilegious sentiment of Jerome and the diatribe, that these passages which Paul adduces have more force in their own place than they have in his epistle. And this is true also, not of Paul only, but of all the apostles who adduce scriptures as testimonies and assertions of their own sentiments. But it would be ridiculous to adduce that as a testimony which testifies nothing and does not make at all to the purpose. And even if there were some among the philosophers so ridiculous as to prove that which was unknown by that which was less known still or by that which was totally irrelevant to the subject, with what face can we attribute such 
kind of proceeding to the greatest champions and authors of the Christian doctrines, especially since they teach those things which are the essential articles of faith and on which the salvation of souls depends. But such a face becomes those who, in the Holy Scriptures, feel no serious interest whatever. Section 101 And with respect to that of Malachi, which Paul annexes, quote, Jacob I have I loved, but Esau have I hated, unquote. Malachi 1, 2 through 3 that the diatribe perverts by a threefold contrivance. The first is, quote, if, the diatribe says, you stick to the letter, God does not love as we love, nor does he hate anyone, because passions of this kind do not pertain unto God. What do I hear? Are we now inquiring whether or not God loves and hates? and rather why he loves and hates? Our inquiry is from what merit it is in us that he loves or hates. We know well enough that God does not love or hate as we do because we love and hate mutably, but he loves and hates from an eternal, immutable nature. And hence it is that accidents and passions do not pertain unto him. And it is this and it is this very state of the truth that the necessity proves free will to be nothing at all, seeing that the love and hatred of God towards men is immutable immutable and eternal existing not only before there was any merit or work of free will but before the worlds were made and that all things take place in us from necessity accordingly as he loved or loved not from all eternity so that not the love of God only but even the manner of his love imposes on us necessity here then it may be seen how much its invented ways of escape profit the diatribe. For the more it attempts to get away from the truth, the more it runs upon it. So, with so little success, does it fight against it. But be it so, that your trope stands good, that the love of God is the effect of love, and the hatred of God is the effect of hatred. Does then that effect take place without and in independent of the will of God? Will you here say also that God does not will as we do, and that the passions of willing does not pertain to Him? If then those effects take place, they do not take place but according to the will of God. Hence, therefore, what God wills, that he loves and hates. Now then, tell me, for what merit did God love Jacob or hate Esau before they wrought or were born? Wherefore it stands manifest that Paul most rightly adduces Malachi in support 
of the passage from Moses, that is, that God therefore called Jacob before he was born, because he loved him. But not that he was first loved by Jacob, nor moved to love him from any merit in him, so that in the cases of Jacob and Esau it is shown what ability there is in our free will. Section 102 The second contrivance is this, that Malachi does not seem to speak of that hatred by which we are damned to all eternity, but of the temporal affliction, seeing that those are reproved who wished to destroy Edom. This, again, is advanced in contempt of Paul as though he had done violence to the scriptures. Thus we hold in no reverence whatever the majesty of the Holy Spirit and only aim at establishing our own sentiments. But let us bear with this contempt for a moment and see what it affects. Malachi then speaks of, an, of temporal affliction. And what if he do? What is it that's your purpose? Paul proves out of Malachi that the affliction was laid on Esau without any desert, by the hatred of God only, and this he does that he might thence conclude that there is no such thing as free will. This is the point that makes against you, and it is to this you ought to have answered. I am arguing about merit, and you are all the while talking about reward, and yet you talk about it as not to evade that which you wish to evade. Nay, in your very talking about reward, you acknowledge merit, and yet pretend you do not see it. Tell me then, what moved God to love Jacob? and to hate Esau even before they were born. But, however, the assertion that Malachi is speaking of temporal affliction only is false, nor is he speaking of the destroying of Edom. You entirely pervert the sense of the prophet by this contrivance. The prophet shows what he means in words the most clear. He upbraids the Israelites with ingratitude because after God had loved them, they did not in return either love him as their father or fear them or fear him as their Lord. Malachi 1 6. That God had loved them, he proves both by the scriptures and by facts in this, that although Jacob and Esau were brothers, as Moses records in Genesis 25:21 through 28. Yet he loved Jacob and chose him before he was born, as we have heard from Paul already. But that he so hated Esau that he removed away his dwelling into the desert, that moreover he so continued and pursued that hatred that when he brought back Jacob from captivity and restored him, 
you would not suffer the Edomites to be restored, and that, even if they at any time said they wished to build, he threatened them with destruction. If this be not the plain meaning of the prophet's text, let the whole world prove me a liar. Therefore the temerity of the Edomites is not here reproved. But, as I said before, the ingratitude of the sons of Jacob, who do not see what God has done for them and against their brethren the Edomites, and for no other reason than because he hated the one and loved the other. How then will your assertion stand good that the prophet is here speaking of temporal affliction, when he testifies in the plainest words that he is speaking of the two people as proceeding from the two patriarchs, the one received to be a people and saved and the other left and at last destroyed. To be received as a people and not to be received as a people does not pertain to temporal good and evil only but unto all things. For our God is not the God of temporal things only, but of all things. Nor does God will to be thy God so as to be worshipped with one shoulder or with a lame foot, but with all thy might and with all thy heart, that he may be thy God as well as here and as hereafter, in all things, in all times, and all works. Section 103. The third contrivance is quote, that, according to the trope interpretation of the passage, God neither loves all the Gentiles nor hates all the Jews, but out of each people some, and that by this use of trope the scripture testimony in question does not at all go to prove necessity but to beat down the arrogance of the Jews." Unquote. The diatribe having opened this way of escape then comes to this, quote, that God is said to hate men before they are born because he, he foreknows that they will do that which will merit hatred and that thus the hatred and love of God do not at all militate against free will. And at last, it draws this conclusion, that the Jews were cut off from the olive tree on account of, their, of the merit of unbelief, and the Gentiles grafted in on account of the merit of faith, according to the authority of Paul. And that a trope is held out to those who are cut off of being grafted in again and a warning given to those who are grafted in that they fall not off. May I perish if the diatribe itself knows what it is talking about. But perhaps this is also a rhetor rhetorical fetch which teaches you when 
any danger seems to be at hand, always to render your sense obscure, lest you should be taken in your own words. I, for my part, can see no place whatever in this passage for those trope interpretations of which the diatribe dreams, but which it cannot establish by proof. Therefore, it is no wonder that this testimony does not make against itself in the trope interpreted sense because it has no such sense. Moreover, we are not disputing about cutting off the grafting in and grafting in of which Paul here speaks in his exhortations. I know that men are grafted in by faith and cut off by unbelief and that they are to be exhorted to believe that they be not cut off. But it does not follow, nor is it proved from this, that they can believe or fall away by the power of free will, which is now the point in question. We are not disputing about who are the believing and who are not, who are Jews and who are Gentiles, and what is the consequence of believing and falling away that pertains unto exhortation. Our point in dispute is by what merit or work they attain unto that faith by which they are grafted in, or unto that unbelief by which they are cut off. This is the point that belongs to you as the teacher of free will. And pray, describe to me this merit. Paul teaches us that this comes to them by no works of theirs, but only according to the love or the hatred of God. And when it is come to them, he exhorts them to persevere, that they be not cut off. But this exhortation does not prove what we can do, but what we ought to do. I am compelled thus to hedge in my adversary with many words, lest he should slip away from and leave the subject point, and take up anything but that. And in fact, to hold him thus to the point is to vanquish him. For all that he aims at is to slide away from the point withdraw himself out of sight and take up anything but that which he first laid down as his subject design. The Puritan Hard Drive and the free online Puritan Hard Drive videos are available at PuritanDownloads.com along with many other Puritan and Reformed books for as little as 99 cents each. Hello, and welcome to this introductory video for the Puritan Hard Drive by Stillwater's Revival Books. You'll soon see why the Puritan Hard Drive is a technological revolution in Puritan, Reformation, and Covenanter studies. For over 25 years, Stillwater's Revival Books has provided the worldwide Christian community with the finest in Puritan and Reformation resources, including classic and contemporary printed works, inspirational sermons, audiobooks, and videos. In recent years, our collection of great Christian works has more than doubled, growing to a library that would occupy nearly 130 CDs. 
The Puritan Hard Drive is a tremendous library of over 12,500 Christian resources on an external hard drive that fits easily in your pocket or purse. It features the works of more than 800 classic and contemporary authors, including John Bunyan, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, Thomas Manton, Samuel Rutherford, and Charles Spurgeon. Timeless works like the English Hexapla, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Sketches of the Covenanters, and from the Puritan Divines, the complete 34-volume set of the Puritan Fast Sermons. Many of these books are rare and classic titles unavailable anywhere else. Over 25 years in the making, the Puritan Hard Drive is simply the most extensive Christian collection ever released. The Puritan Hard Drive comprises more than 12,500 Puritan and Reformation resources, over half a million pages of great Christian books, more than 10,000 sermons and audiobooks in MP3 format, providing years of listening enjoyment, over 70 videos, all in all, a library of thousands of exceptional works accessible and affordable to everyone. Included on the Puritan hard drive is a custom search engine that makes it easy to find, browse, and organize the resources in your library, and much easier than trying to wade through a typical file directory on your computer. Connect the Puritan hard drive to any available USB port on your PC or Mac. The drive is self-contained, so there's no software to install or configure. Within moments, you can begin exploring the library by running the custom search interface. It's also a knowledge base with information about each work, including the author, title, description, keywords, and subject category. For you techies, this database contains over 4.5 million records of information. For all of us, that means we have an extremely powerful search and study tool. A list of all resources on the Puritan hard drive is available for viewing at any time. Here we see that the list of print materials contains over 2,100 works. This view is ideal for browsing all documents or media files in alphabetical order, by title or by author. The list is rather long. So using the search function of the knowledge base is the easiest way of finding resources of interest to you. For example, let's say that my pastor recommended a book by James Henley Thornwell. I can search the knowledge base by author by typing his name in this field or by selecting it from the complete list of nearly 800 authors provided at the click of a button. Clicking the search button executes the search and immediately returns a list of all resources by this author. In this case, I've quickly found the book that was recommended to me. Clicking on the green icon opens the resource, allowing me to begin my reading. Further details about any resource can be found by clicking on the book cover icon, which opens the resource detail page. From here, I can browse the details of this work. I can add and save my own notes about it and open the resource for reading, listening, or viewing. Your search capabilities don't end there. 
The majority of the rare, classic works on the Puritan hard drive now contain an embedded index. This means that the actual text of these resources is now fully searchable for the first time in history. Enter a search term in Adobe Acrobat Reader. In this case, a search for the word scripture yields instant results. Having searchable text also makes it possible to highlight, copy, and paste the text into another document, such as a sermon, a lesson plan, or a school paper. Less time spent on research means more time for reading, studying, and appreciating the resources in your library. Just another reason why the Puritan hard drive is a technological revolution in Puritan, Reformation, and Covenanter studies. Thank you for watching this introduction to the Puritan hard drive by Stillwater's Revival Books, serving Christians worldwide for over 25 years. Join us in our other videos as we demonstrate even more features and functionality of the Puritan hard drive. For more information, visit us on the web at puritandownloads.com. Until then, be well and God bless.